Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversation with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, right now, so many people are facing unemployment and uncertainty. That's really obvious. And a lot of them are asking, maybe you're asking, how did it get to be this bad? How is it that so many of us are just on that edge where the economy can shut down for just a few months and it's really only been just a few months and we'd all in this, be in this precarious position where our entire lives could collapse. And unfortunately, before anybody even gets the chance to answer that question, how did it get to be this bad, these waves of anxiety can wash over. They can overcome people. They can overcome you or me. And the need to get a job is the imperative to find another job, to find another way to make money. You've got to get a job or you'll die. And especially in the U.S. where to not have a job is to not be taken care of if you're sick. And of course, also, this is in the midst of a constantly blaring message that you will get sick. You will need medical attention. All it takes is a slip of the mask and you could lose everything. The anxiety is totally understandable and so is the resultant action from that anxiety, scrambling for a job, scrambling to find income just to keep afloat. But can we, at the same time as attending to our urgent material needs, at the same time as that, also just take a minute to reflect on the role of work and its function in our lives, or maybe take an hour and a half, which is what we'll do on this podcast. Ask, how do we get entrenched in this insidious wage-labor relationship where we're servants to that really repulsive phrase, making a living? I hate that phrase. We have a living. We have lives. How dare that wage-labor relationship, how dare work overlay itself onto life and even pretend that it is life. I knew that I need to talk about this. I've talked about this on the show before, but I knew I needed to talk about it again and at great depth. So I invited political theorist, feminist, author, and philosopher Kathy Weeks onto the show. Kathy is the author of two short but very profound books, The Problem with Work, Feminism, Marxism, Anti-Work Politics, and Post-Work Imaginaries and also constituting feminist subjects. The former, The Problem with Work, elucidates the entire anti-work ethos from a Marxist feminist perspective and uses a tactic to dismantle the crazed attachment we have to work ethic that I love, of course, utopia. What if we employed utopianism as a tactic against work to open new ways forward? And the latter, Constituting Feminist Subjects, which is a newer book, is equally great, and it's about how we can find solidarity amongst each other and generate new tactics, new strategy, new knowledge, draw from that common wealth of experience from our differing standpoints, and particularly our standpoints that we might learn in our individual uh, survival strategies or ways of grappling with that wage-labor relationship. On this episode, Kathy and I talk about all sorts of aspects of the work we are impelled to do, or what Rudolf Steiner calls wagery. From the stupid question that anti-work activists get all the time, which is basically something like, well, if we don't work anymore, who's going to take the garbage out, and who's going to build a car, or whatever, 
these questions that are really just distractions in the same way that when someone says for prison abolition, someone's like, well, what about Ted Bundy? They, they immediately go for the most difficult um, example to sort of think through and around, but that doesn't mean there's not a solution. So we start with that because we got to get that out of the way. <laughs> we also talk about the potential problems with rallying cries around work. So for me, that really important one is, you know, sex work is work. That's really an important rallying cry, but there are also some problems with it in the way that it relates to work, or there could be some pitfalls there. So we talk about that as well. Uh, and we talk about using Marxist feminism and being attended to its limits at the same time. It can encapsulate everything, and Kathy's well aware of that. In fact, compassionately aware of it, even for the sake of solidarity. We talk about how that non-consensual wage-labor relationship bleeds into our everyday lives and our language. Um, I find myself more and more, uh, I actually do it on this show, on this episode, I find myself more and more correcting myself. When I say something like, oh, I really love so-and-so's work, or, uh, you know, I think there's something really interesting about this person's work, trying to replace that word work with efforts <laughs> or, or something more suitable, because I, I want to even sort of kind of uh, get it out of my language where I can. Um, we also talk about utopia a lot, and... I asked Kathy, how far does she go with her utopian vision? Does it go into flying cars and oceans of lemonade and so on and so forth? How big do we want to dream? Kathy has this great view of utopia. And uh, one of my favorite parts of this discussion is when she says, the utopian practice is a practice of expanding time. I think that's so great. As far as our solutions go, our utopian solutions or otherwise our practical solutions, how do we implement solutions? Um, the one we bring up on this episode is a universal basic income. So how do we implement something like UBI that can help us now, but also presents a whole host of issues that we might have to deal with down the line? So this whole episode is framed as a vision must be there and the on-the-ground action must be there. And what we really also need to do, it's this sort of third part, which is removing the illusory opposition between the on-the-ground action and the vision, which is something I've been trying to do for a really long time. Um, and, you know, if you are a vision person, you get attacked by the on-the-ground people. If you're an on-the-ground person, you get attacked by the visionary people. And um, we've got to remove that opposition because that removal will only strengthen the intentional thinking, the purposeful action, and the intensity of feeling behind vision and action. So this is where I tell you about the show a little bit more. Do you like this show? It takes a lot of, it does, it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> um, when we support each other as artists and creators and listeners. Uh, we relate to our community through gifts and donations, that sort of thing. We help erode that wage-labor relationship. The best way I could find to do that with my show was through Patreon. So it's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. There you sign on, you can uh, pledge at any level and you give a small amount or a huge amount uh, each month, depending on whatever your financial circumstances are, whatever you can give. And it's just, you know, 
whatever, and you get cool stuff back and you end up supporting the show. Patreon is not perfect, but it is one of the better solutions for people like me that are trying to do real serious stuff for the world that's helpful, that uh, gives something. And I think this show really does give something. Um, And I think it has value for people and for me and for the guests that I have on the show. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. And <clears throat> you can go through all the other episodes as well. The, I mean, the episodes are free and available to everybody, whether you are a patron or not. Um, and I've talked a lot about post-work and anti-work action and theory. So if you're new to the show, you can go through, you can find um, my episode about idleness, why idleness is not a bad thing, why being lazy is not a bad thing with the philosopher Brian O'Connor, who's also an Adorno scholar. That's uh, episode 89. I did a solo episode, episode 85, called Abolish Work, which is just all about, well, abolishing work. Um, episode 83 was with Franco Bifo Berardi. We talk about work a bit. Um, episode 69 is with uh, porn performer Sovereign Sire and Dr. Heather Berg, who is a scholar of sex work um, and has a great book called Porn Work coming out next year. Uh, And then even briefly on episode 99 with the late and great anarchist and anthropologist David Graeber, um, we talk about work a bit there too. So there's so much uh, out there from this show uh, about these topics that you can go through and uh, find these episodes and listen to them. Um, But those are free and available to everybody, and I want to keep making them free and available to everybody. And one of the ways I do that is through patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Please do support the show today. Also, please go on iTunes um, and give it a five-star rating. That is uh, a way that makes the show more visible. It's It's a way to do that, to make the show more visible to more people. The iTunes thing works. It doesn't average the ratings, which is cool, because that means you can't really be trolled on there. Um, like a low rating just kind of falls into the abyss doesn't even really uh, become visible but five star ratings as well as you know good reviews but the five star ratings especially make the show more and more visible for people the more five star ratings you have the more visible the show becomes so please go to itunes and give it the ipodcast whatever the hell it's called now give it a five star rating subscribe all that kind of stuff (laughs) and uh please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show. Okay, so now let's get into the episode with Kathy Weeks, and hopefully by the end of this, you will uh, follow that cry from uh, my uh, this anarchist who's been influenced uh, influential on me when I was younger, Bob Black, who ended his great essay, uh, The Abolition of Work, with the line, workers of the world, relax. All right, here we go. Um, okay, so I think we will start. <laughs> so, you know, there have been a few interviews and like follow ups with you where I see this very sort of common question that always kind of um, bothers me, which is something like, um, well, Kathy Weeks says that we need to start, 
you know, we, we, we need to do away with work and that there's an issue with it, but who's going to take out my garbage? Um, who's going to make my car, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I always, I always have a feeling like, well, doesn't this reveal some sort of like bourgeoisie, like, <laughs> like idea of property, property ownership and private property and, and, and who serves whom and all that kind of stuff. But um, I thought we would start there partially just to get it out of the way um, yeah, <laughs> as we yeah, move yeah, on yeah. to the rest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny when you, when you pose the question that way, it just that kind of occurred to me that, you know, when people say, well, who's going to take out my garbage, they seize on the one example of actually necessary labor. Like, it's not like who's going to make the 18th brand of toothpaste, right? It's like the <laughs> right. one thing they can find out that's actually useful that people do. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, let's see, when I'm talking about post-work or the abolition of work or anti-work, I mean work as it's now organized and as it's now valued. So I'm not against any kind of what you could even call productive activity. I'm not against economics or, you know, economic activity. I'm, a, I'm trying to take aim at the general, at a general system, right. That requires that most of us have to wait, work for wages in order to live. And it's that, that system I'm trying to raise questions about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also, you know, when you say that that's, you know, this form of necessary work, we also would notice the dramatic reduction in trash and garbage, one would hope, um, <laughs> because the, the, the idea of where, you know, the garbage is, I mean, most of that's outside of, you know, big office buildings and, um, you know, and, and, and factories to some extent. So the idea is like, well, who's going to take out this actual sanitation from my home? Even that would reduce you know, by a huge factor, if people weren't doing unnecessary, um, putting, putting their efforts into unnecessary things during the day, I would assume. So I think it's also someone not really taking the vision far enough when they bring that kind of thing to you. And I always get frustrated. <laughs> I always yeah. get frustrated by it. But yeah. I, yeah, I understand you're talking about the system. So, okay. So now that now that that's out of the way, just so the people who would kick and scream about that right in the beginning, maybe we'll move into something a little uh, that goes a little deeper, which is, you know, the, the sick day. Um, and right now, I know that there's a lot of people uh, <laughs> dealing with one version of a sick day or another. And I, something really interested me in thinking about this was the way that the presence of work in people's lives turns illness into a kind of identity where you, t you take a sick day, you are sick. It's in opposition. Like your illness becomes this huge problem in opposition to what you're supposed to be doing with your day. And I didn't know if you'd been sort of noticing some of that or some of that was popping up for you as we were going through this global crisis and all the talk about illness and health. Yeah. No, I haven't really thought about it, but I think that is really interesting. I mean, you know, if you think about who we're supposed to be as workers, you know, there's always this ideal image of what we're supposed to be. And so that ideal worker is someone who's capable of working for, you know, whatever the standard is for full-time work. And if you think about it, how, how many of us can really do that? I mean, if you take into account like uh, physical disabilities, neurological differences, emotional 
affective, psychological differences among us. I mean, if you think about the range of people and their capacities, how many of us can really be expected to have 40 hours a week minimal of intensive activity? And then, you know, that idea of the sick day is the one day you're allowed not to live up to that idea. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and then, you know, even, you know, I was thinking about the all of the times. Can you take a sick day if you're in mourning or if you're, you know, your heart was broken? A personal like, day. Yeah, a personal <laughs> day. Right. Right. But all of these, you know, basic life experiences and all of these like differences among us get papered over by imagining that we can most the majority can live up to this ideal and it's just a pretty impossible ideal when you start taking every all these differences into account it's this weird fantasy i think that that we can like you have to do a lot of selective excluding of people that you know and in the world to be able to support the idea that this is a reasonable ask for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I was sort of just thinking of it in the terms of also the ways then that work reaches into all these other spheres and ge generates, uh, you know, identity ideas for us. Um, like even in my own I, I have such trouble talking about my own life. Like I, <laughs> I love to say, for instance, like, okay, you know, uh, I really like three things in life. I like fucking conversation and books. So I made those things my life. And I understand that there is a, a hidden thing in there. So I, I think that's great on one hand <laughs> for me to be able to say that, but then there is this kind of like, almost like sort of domination or power scheme in there. That's like, and you, you know, you can do it too. You, you know, you can yeah. do what you love as well. And so I'm, I'm certainly not trying to broadcast that message when I say that I'm trying to say something else and maybe we'll get into th that in a bit, but I also see that kind of hidden part there where even though I've done almost as much as a person can to try to, extricate themselves from the waged labor relationship, you know, that uh, re really creates so much trouble for people. I'm still kind of uh, <laughs> infected <laughs> or, or polluted or whatever by the whole field of work in general, that the things I say can't be unfettered now. Yeah. By yeah. Yeah. There's kind of two levels to that. One is that, I mean, it's great that you've been able to do that, but it's a pretty privileged position to actually find a niche where you could support yourself and, you know, pursue the things that you enjoy doing. But I mean, like you're saying, a lot of it is, you know, even, I, and I, you know, as a, as a college teacher, I, I worry about this all the time. It's like, you're supposed to help students find their passion, you know, like do what you love. And that's a really insidious, <laughs> sort of message like what are the chances that whatever it is they love doing or they're passionate about is going to end up earning them an income like what are the chances of that you know you, and it's almost like assuming you know that the available jobs out there will fit you in that way and i think that's a real um i think that's a real mystification of what's going on there 
Mm-hmm. I mean, Mia Tokamitsu talks about this in this you know, discourse of loving your work. And she thinks that there's a kind of class narcissism involved in it, you know, because there's all these, you know, people who, well, they don't have very lovable work, but I, you know, can love my work. Um, and so I think that's part of it too. But I think there's something even more insidious about this idea of loving your work and finding this passion and this idea that you can find some kind of subjective fit between you and your job. Um, again, I think that there's a weird fantasy going on there. And so no matter what happens, then you try to fit yourself into it because it's not really entirely what you love or are passionate about. And plus, you know, we can get into this, but there's this whole that like, like the way that these words love and passion are being appropriated for managerial purposes. <laughs> I mean, and you know, a lot of things are appropriated for capitalist purposes and that doesn't mean you just abandon them. You know, you still might want to struggle over them. And maybe love's one of them. I don't know. I'm not so sure about passion, though, but maybe that's just me. But there's something like, you know, the way that passion is used in that discourse of, you know, find what you're passionate in in life, you know, is there's this weird instrumentalization of it. Like, you would think passion, whatever else it is, is like straightforwardly instrumental. Like, you know, it's like, it's like as if your passion is going to make you functional for the work society. I mean, at minimum, you think passion is something excessive and unproductive and, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it just seems so bizarre that they've managed to capture it and, 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 and convince people that they can find this or indulge this or, or experience this passion through a job. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back to passion because I want to talk about Fourier a little bit and he certainly was fond of the word passion, you know, and, mm. um, and I think in a way that actually is the opposite of what you're talking about and how it's, how you're pointing out rightly that it's used now, but I want to just pull, pull on a little point that you made because I was noticing something in myself when you said like, well, that's, you know, like that's a very privileged standpoint. And there was this part, this little voice in me, not the overriding voice, of course, but this little voice in me mm. that's like, I work really hard, Kathy. You know, like <laughs> I'm this like, right? Like, I'm worthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, but there is like, so if I'm to sort of take that voice and not just be like, fuck you, you're the, the you know, awful capitalist in my brain, I would just say like, there is a part of me that can maybe hear that and say, well, okay, but also like taking this path has been extremely arduous and difficult and mm-hmm. has put me, you know, really close to being, uh, well, it has put me in being broke and then also close to being poor many times as well. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, like, what do you, what do you say to that? And I think it's, I'm asking myself this question as well as you, because I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that because it certainly doesn't, it doesn't feel like when I look on the scope of, you know, my life that that is privilege. But when I, when I hear, you know, what you say Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. bit down the line, which is like, you know, this idea that you can just sort of fit into these 
you know, these jobs that you aspire to or whatever, as if that always happens or even usually happens like that, I can understand as privilege, like that, the sort of, mm-hmm. that you would, that the shape of your life would fit the sort of slot, you know, <laughs> that, that you wanted it to go into. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sort of wondering about that because there, there definitely is the story of the people who were, you know, kind of selected by uh, technocrats or, you know, music corporations or, you know, whatever it is and like put in a place, you know, assembled by sort of committee and put in a place and all that kind of stuff. But then there are a lot of people who are working artists that actually it turns into this other kind of struggle through life that doesn't feel like how that was described. Mm -hmm. And that's not to, uh, that's not to disagree with what you're saying, because I also know that it's correct, but but it's a weird tension there <laughs> that I'm trying to sort yeah. through. Yeah, no, no, I think that's fair. And I mean, maybe another way to say it is not about, because there's a kind of, and I think maybe this is part of why the critique of privilege is probably not a good one, is that there's, it's taking on a kind of individualizing and moralizing tone for this critique. And mm-hmm. maybe another one is to say, I think it's great that you found a kind of exit and a path as, you know, as, as arduous as it's been for you. And that's wonderful. And I think other people can do that. But there's also this system out there, this structure that's pretty impermeable to everyone doing that. You know what I mean? I mean, certainly people can escape. And I recommend highly that people try if they can. But I kind of want to take aim at the structures that even if some people can escape them are pretty effective in capturing most people. Um, and that's kind of what I want to keep my eye on too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of helping individuals find a path out, take a look at the structures and institutions, waged work, the dominant discourses around waged work, unwaged work and domestic work and how those are functioning pretty effectively for many people to limit their options. Um, So I I think it's more like, do we want to focus on individuals and lines of flight or do we want to take aim at structures and institutions? And I think both are important, but I'm much more myself taking aim at structures and and institutions. Right. I I think think that's right. So like to the extent that you get to sort of get in that weird um <laughs> like for people that don't know the this term line of flight um it's almost <laughs> like you can kind of imagine your whole life getting sucked into one of those like bank teller tubes that used to shove the canister yeah, 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 yeah. although now i i guess people don't might be too young to know what that is too okay but basically like you exacerbate a situation so much that you kind of you, you reach a kind of escape velocity and can look upon the field of conditions that you were in before does that sound okay for yeah, my yeah, yeah, yeah so I would say then like if you get that line of flight, like then the, then the idea is, yeah, now to make that available to everybody, you know, it's like, because right. I, I kept hearing this critique, you know, during um, lockdown conditions, which I guess a lot of people in the U S are still in, but like where it's was, you know, it's, it's okay to do nothing. It's okay to do nothing. Which first of all, I objected to, on the basis of, well, that's the something. What do you mean nothing? That's actually the something of life. The work is the nothing, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, right. but, then the, but then the other half was, 
you know, it's okay to do nothing, but that has to be like, it's okay for us always to be able to do this all the time. And I think that that's sort of the same critique that's yeah. be, that you're bringing here, which is like, you know, whether it is privilege or by, you know, certain kinds of effort or most likely a combination, you know, of those factors, the important part is what you, I suppose, do once you've reached a kind of escape velocity, you know, or, or, or mm-hmm. something. Maybe mm-hmm. that's too simplistic, but I, uh, but maybe, <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe that brings together what you were, those two points you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in another way, is in, within utopian studies, you know, what are the value of utopian experiments that communities or groups perform? You know, that they go and try to live a different life together. And on the one hand, some people say, well, that's not going to change anything. It's just one group that's doing it. But I think that there's always pedagogical effects and a kind of lesson and sense of possibility with these experiments too. So I wouldn't, I mean, on the one hand, I don't think that they necessarily add up to a revolutionary radical transformation. On the other hand, I think that they're valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe some of that too, some of the snag there for me in my feeling was, you know, thinking about with sex work, you know, I mean, you've written about it and spoken about it a bit, but the way the sex work is work argument is Mm. being framed by activists, which I think you rightly point out in the problem with work is like, I'm not saying don't use the term sex work. It's certainly a step up from, you know, being prostituted or whatever, that kind of language. And yet, like, there's a valorization of work piece in this trying to inscribe a sort of new tautology around sex work, like, out there. And for me, you know, there have been a few, (laughs) before I had a deeper understanding, there have been a few conflicts um, with me and sort of other sex work activists. I mean, this is like 10 years ago, so I don't think this way anymore. But I was always like, well, I kind of like, I like doing this, you know, and and d- do I only have a voice in the activist space if I am miserable in my job? Yeah, right, and, right. And and then and and if and if if that's true, then who's really absorbing the work ethic? You know, like what's yeah, yeah, <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. What, what's happening here? And so I think, but actually, you know, then I stand back and I see, well, that's applied to all workers, right? Like that yeah. that um, you know. On the one hand, it is important to say you don't have to love your job. We're all struggling to survive and jobs are tactics to deal with this fucking monstrous structure and system. But on the other hand, um, you don't also have to be miserable. Like it's already bad enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I always learned about this from Wages for Housework. And it's just been for me a really useful model because of this double gesture they did with their demand for wages for housework. Mm. Because on the one hand, they're trying to say, look, this is work. This is work. You know, sex work is work. Artistic work is work. I mean, these are forms of labor. You better recognize them and discuss them as income generating activities. And that was, you know, the impulse behind naming this sex work rather than, you know, prostitution or something like that. But at the same time, the double gesture is saying, but that doesn't mean it's anything to celebrate. Mm. You know, naming it work is not meant to, to moralize it or sanctify it. And that is such a hard double gesture to do. So like in sex work, it's really important that we talk about this as income generating work. On the other hand, you don't want to ride on the coattails of the work ethic to try to dignify it and make it special and somehow beyond reproach or to 
kind of make it a morally or ethically sort of virtuous practice because we can label it work. And so like, that's really hard to do. And then you add on to that, you know, what feminists have been struggling with, with something like domestic work, but it's also, I mean, it's a site of exploitation and alienation um, and the overvaluation of a kind of labor of love, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a practice where, you know, people have been able to cultivate alternative ways of living and maybe alternative values that we might want to generalize too. And I think that's true for forms of sex work. Let's look at, you know, the kinds of forms of life and possibilities and pleasures that every form of work also generates and to think about that. But it's always hard to juggle all these balls at the same time (laughs) because how do you do that without overvaluing it or sanctifying it or making it and you know an, a model of virtuous practice you know and and to then kind of celebrate it as a form of income generating work and yet talk about it in serious you know and investigate the ways that people who have done this work have made lives and made communities and found pleasures etc cetera, etc cetera. i think all of this is really hard to do when we talk about work and i think it's it comes out, and that's why feminists are interesting because they started doing this with domestic work. That's why I think sex work debates and discourses are so interesting and so important. And I think the same thing for, you know, debates about artistic labor mm-hmm. and how we think about that as both, you know, exploited, alienated, you know, discounted as, you know, arduous and something that should be remunerated with wages but also something that might be an alternative set of practices we could learn something about, about how to organize other forms of work. So I don't know. I think all this is super hard, but really, really important. Yeah. And I think as a solution, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later, but I think your idea in constituting feminist subjects of um, feminist standpoint theory, it really is a helpful um, way to deal with some of this. Um, and also presents a, a different model of solidarity for us. But before I get, get into that, I want to say, you know, there's this thing, I, and Sylvia Federici, who I've, <laughs> I've had, um, I've, I've expressed frustration with her work on the show <laughs> multiple times with other people, but I appreciate some of the work she does too. And one of the things, you know, she says, there's that great quote, we want to call work, what is work so that eventually we might discover what is love. Yeah. And, and I, and I love that, but then I get frustrated because I think there still is kind of this uh, deferral of any, I know I'm overstating the case a bit, but there's a deferral of any investigation into value that does not weave itself immediately into political economy that doesn't immediately become this question. And, and I realize that actually that's, that's not the fault of Silvio Federici. That's the fault of work, you know, and that's the fault of the, but when, you know, one of the things that I've brought up on the show with, with her writing is the way that witchcraft becomes reduced to questions of capitalism, political economy, that kind of uh, stuff. I see, Anyways, I see. Right. And I think sex work can be too, you know, right. like I, 
try to say like, well, sex work is work, but sex work is also sex. Like, Mm -hmm. let's talk Mm -hmm. about the lessons Mm -hmm. about sex from sex work and the value that it has for sex workers beyond just framing it in a work. And that's often seen as oppositional, but it's not at all. I mean, I obviously am completely for the sort of rallying cry and the steps around, you know, the immediately and urgently needed action to take, um, you know, uh, around this idea of sex work as work because of mm-hmm. the conditions. However, <laughs> then we, I feel we end up losing questions of value sometimes. And that, and, and sometimes I worry that this, we want to call work as work, what is work is that like, there's an idea that love cannot be discovered until like that field is purified in some way. And I, I don't know that that's true. And also I think that depending on which pathway we take to call work, what is work, we might even end up distorting the, the, the conclusion of value that we come to when it comes to love or sex or mm. witchcraft or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And, and the way that I'm reacting to that is to kind of, um, because I think I'm on Sylvia's side on this, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that I, I mean, because my my interest is in, in anti capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's where I'm interested. So I'm always going to talk about work, and I and in the process, and this is the, what I'm you know kind of learning from, and reminded by what you're saying is that I can talk about all of these things as work, but it's going to be reductive. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really reductive in a way that might do damage to some of these practices, but. I'll give you, and I think the sex working example is a really good one, but let me give you another example that isn't such a good one. Mm. You know, the way that, you know, when feminists, Marxist feminists started talking about the institution of the family as a managerial regime for the organization of reproductive and productive labor, um, you know, some people objected, no, the family's a site of love and solidarity. (laughs) Well, okay, okay. I think it is, but... I think it's going to be profoundly shaped and compromised in its function as a site of love and solidarity by its role as a management regime for the organization. You know what I mean? And so maybe that's an example that works better for justifying my, uh, my (laughs) maniacal focus on working capitalism. But I think your point is well taken that, you know, Marxist feminism is one discourse and it can't explain all of reality. It has a very particular agenda. And so it's going to highlight the world according to the analysis and the goals of that discourse. It's like any theory, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it is important to recognize the limits of it in its ability to talk about anything, any phenomenon or any sector or any form of work. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I the family example is really a good one where that is absolutely correct. Um, and I think also saying, well, it's one kind of, you know, Marxist feminism is one kind of way of presenting it or, or approaching, you know, there's that Gail Rubin thing where she says, you know, neither fe- Marxism is no more capable of containing sex than feminism, or she says something like that. Yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah, that's nice. and I love that, right? Because it spills yeah, yeah. out over everything right. because sex is constitutive of the human being in a way that yeah. these other things are not quite. But I think um, for me, the reason the family one works, but the sex and the witchcraft ones don't, is because at least 
now like the sex and the witchcraft discourses are are marginalized discourses that look in and would therefore know more about <laughs> would be able to describe work like sex workers would be able to describe work and and people who are really doing witchcraft as opposed to i'm 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 dismissing a whole group of people but as opposed to like witches of instagram like kind of stuff like who are doing occult practice might be able to talk about economy in a way that um offers a lot that's new there in a way but you know the family being such a dominant mode yeah. kind of yeah. ends up needing you know the the enemy of yes. marxist feminism you know right right yeah no i think that's fair i think that's right but it's also you're also showing me like yeah but she, <laughs> there are a lot of things that this statement of sylvia's and her work apply or efforts to apply to that um actually it's dead on so you know <laughs> maybe i need to be more generous i think <laughs> um well so okay I was saying before that I think feminist standpoint theory is part of um, is part of the solution for juggling all these balls at once. So, could you maybe explain, like, give the <laughs> give the sort of glossary definition of that, and then we'll di- we'll go deeper into it um, as we as we go and flesh it out a bit. Okay, so um, I think a lot of things go by the name of standpoint theory. So it's one of those terms that ended up getting really stretched. But the version of it, and I think this goes back to some of the original formulations by Nancy Hartsock and uh, Hillary Rose, and to some extent, uh, Dorothy Smith, is it comes out of a kind of Marxist feminist discourse that really focuses on uh, a standpoint in labor. And so trying to look at um, the the claim that you are what you do, and so what you want to do is you look at the kinds of labor that people are trained to do and that they spend some time doing and that they're expected to do, and try to think about what that standpoint might generate in terms of perspective on the world or knowledges or values that might be specific to that kind of practice in that social location. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I mean, part of this for me was really looking at, you know, a standpoint of domestic labor. And, you know, if that's a a kind of denied standpoint in some ways that was seen as, you know, subjective and specific, what kinds of practices and values get generated from that particular standpoint in the world and trying to value the knowledges. So a lot of this is related to Donna Haraway's notion of situated knowledges that, you know, you're your knowledge is really situated in a particular kind of social location and to recognize that. And so to recognize that knowledges are partial, but that some people's knowledges have been discounted uh, and devalued and others over, overprivileged and recognized. Yeah. So it leads you, I think to, first of all, interesting that like, so you've, you've presented it in a pretty concise way, but I hadn't really known this theory right and cuz you seem to res- and you acknowledge that you resurrect it in a way in this in constituting feminist subjects so what what happened to it <laughs> is i'm yeah. in- interested in why cuz it seems so important as a question of you know even if people are sort of just marxist leninists without the feminist aspect that they be invested in that idea of solidarity that comes out of feminist standpoint theory but i don't it seems to just not 
it seems to have gone away. And you said, I think you at one point say, oh, what, why would I turn to this theory that's kind of been outmoded at this point? What, yeah. what happened? Well, I mean, it didn't die. It went into other fields. And so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, scientists and feminists who are trying to think about it within these fields. So, I mean, I think that the term lives on and I think it was taken up in a kind of non-Marxist way to think about epistemology and, and things like that. So I think it still exists, but the, the, the lineage that I was part of, I think it got um, coded in, you know, the 19, late 1980s and 1990s as essentialist. And so sometimes it was reinterpreted and actually, you know, maybe this is some people who advocated feminist standpoint theory did it this way, but most of them did, which is like any person who's in a social location will develop these knowledges and these values. And that wasn't the argument. The argument is that it's a potential that might be cultivated mm. through a collective practice of saying, look, maybe we should start, you know, recognizing these aspects of our lives and start to value them. So it was a, it was a political standpoint. It wasn't a natural, spontaneous standpoint, but I think it got, it got misinterpreted as making this kind of essentialist claim that all women might develop these knowledges. And so it was kind of, I mean, I think this happens a lot, you know, it ended up being kind of reduced to a caricature and then dismissed uh, for mm -hmm. that reason. And also because I think, you know, some of the original ones didn't talk about multiple standpoints. I mean, it was really on this model of the kind of Marx proletariat versus bourgeoisie. And so, okay, we'll talk about men versus women. And that's, you know, obviously problematic. I think, you know, later people talk about multiple standpoints, um, you know, that depend on different locations. So, I mean, I think it might have been also, um, you know, uh, a victim of some of the early formulations. And instead of saying, let's make this better, let's, people said, let's abandon the project. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really one of the things I saw it doing. Um, we'll see if you agree with me fr framing it this way, but is like, so the wage labor relationship um, that constitutes what we call work, um, or I love the word Rudolf Steiner uses for it, which is wagery, that the wagery like versus the content of the day are, those are, it's not that they're, it's not that they're not interwoven or that they're so separate um, that they can be completely pulled apart. But something that this standpoint theory that you write about does is it allows us to ask questions of the content of the workday of all the people that are enmeshed in the wage labor relationship that we're all kind of stuck in, in, in most, in, in most cultures. So you could, for instance, ask a sex worker, you know, what are you learning here? Um, by the way you live out your day. And of course, different sex work types of sex workers and, you know, different sex work communities, that sort of stuff would have different answers for that. But um, one of the reasons why that's so valuable and so potent is that it gives us strategies and tactics for how to, you know, erode that wage labor relationship. Because basically what people are doing is creating and generating um, knowledge or what Michael Hart, who was just on who said, uh, the show recently said, you know, it's like the, he and Tony Negri call it the, the Commonwealth. Like what, what can we draw on from that area to, uh, of shared knowledge to erode and combat this thing that we're stuck in and forced to deal with. And I, I, I love that because 
I mean, I love it particularly in regards to sex work because there's this whole line that like, like people are sort of leapfrogging all that knowledge and being like, well, there'll just be no sex work after the revolution or whatever. I mean, it's such a bizarre way of framing things. It's like, okay, well, maybe that's true. Maybe not. I have no idea, but do we not want to talk to people and find out what they've learned from their, (laughs) from their day at, at doing sex work and the strategies that could erode and assist in that revolution, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I I love that, and also I love it because there's so much focus on the the exact things in work that make people miserable, and so it 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 complicates the picture because it's saying, you know, the aspect that makes work miserable is not necessarily the thing you do in, in the day, and that clears up a lot of problems, I think, um, with the way people try to frame. Uh, work abolition arguments, and I know constituting fem- feminist subjects isn't all about work, by the way. But it, but it is. But it, I found that really interesting with the the way the two books related to each other. Yeah, no, and I think that's interesting. I mean, another way to say it, like in my project, it would be that anti work and anti work um, intention and critique, and also post work imagination about what will come later, they develop within work. I mean, is that you know, in that formulation, well, after the revolution, well, who's going to make that revolution? You have to find imminent possibilities within the present. And I, I mean, again, like, you know, feminists have often said, you know, in their long critiques of the kind of feminized domestic labor, you know, these are, you know, deeply problematic. But there's also, for some people, these practices of caring that are central to it that we might want to think about and revalue and think about how people who have done that labor have knowledges about how to reorganize this and and to build different kinds of values and cultural ideals that might nurture and support it. So I think, I think that's a really important insight is that work is both the site of oppression exploitation, but it's also the site of life where we're inventing things on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I guess it just goes back to Marx, right? The proletariat, is powerful because of their practices and the knowledges and the capacities that they generate, even while they're being exploited and alienated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that just because you would find people, well, how do I say this? Yeah. Let me back up a little bit. So like you might find people who learn sort of positive or things that they love about doing some kind of factory work versus people who are mainly focusing on the things that they hate about it. Right. And those are both sites of wisdom and and information. And the point is not, you know, like this sort of misunderstanding of Hegel that you would try to resolve the contradiction between the two, but rather that there would be a tension, a productive tension um, between the two standpoints being held or juggled maybe as you said before right yeah 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 it's more those balls in the air that you have to constantly be mindful of um Mm -hmm. you know this it's so profound and also very very like well yeah of course kathy would then go and and write about utopia so often because actually these holding these two standpoints in tension makes something like utopia uh 
possible almost that, that these new directions are completely mm-hmm. available to us when we hold these tensions. Even in your writing about utopia, there's tension there too, right? That you are saying something like utopia is a tactic almost, or maybe a strategy. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how you would phrase mm-hmm. that, but it's something that you do. It's not necessarily the, the end point. It's something that you have to do. It's emotion. Yes. And, and I think, you know, I mean, but, you know, a classic definition of utopia that was invented by anti-utopians is um, a state of impossible perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you indulge it, you're indulging escape, escapism and that leads to, leads to political pacification. So, you know, that's obviously a definition of what utopia is designed to dismiss it. But I mean, I think most of us who in utopian studies think about utopias as as a process and that our visions are always partial and imperfect. So it's an ongoing process of trying to both, I mean, and then I think you get into the dual functions of utopia, which is both there's a kind of critical function. So imagining an alternative is a way of getting some critical purchase on the present, you know, to see it more clearly in some ways that's people, some people call that the estrangement function of utopia. Um, And then the other one is a kind of provocation function, which is like trying to help you think about how to exercise your own political utopian imagination. So, I mean, by this measure, the value of someone's utopian musings or utopian vision is not so much that, you know, the content of it, oh, let's go there, let's try this. It's like they're trying to model what it means to start thinking about what might be better and what you might want. So we don't have any opportunities to, you know, to exercise that kind of political, sociological imagination. So I think of those as the values of utopia and then it's a again it's an ongoing process it's an experiment it's a it's a way of kind of cultivating both a critical and a hopeful imaginary so yeah i mean i guess the question that was kind of unanswered for me when when i'm reading the utopia chapter of the problem with work is how far you go with it i mean i know how far i go which is like pretty fucking far <laughs> but you know like i was bringing up foyer before and he's been really important to me but of course people you know laugh at foyer for saying you know that you have oceans of lemonade as the the main example that everybody would know or that the planets were bisexual and making love to each other or that like sure you might do something that looks like work but every time you want to do it it would feel like oral sex or you know, whatever yeah, it was yeah. but for me it's so important to, you know, kind of plant that stake in my imagination. So it's constantly reminding me of, uh, you know, where my limits are. And, you know, I think that the abolishing work is a huge, huge project in some ways. And then also I wonder, like, are you going where where do you stop? I mean, is it just that you might feel um, 
like it has to be grounded in a practical political aim or would you just go as far as the oceans of lemonade or for you, where does it, uh, where does it aim for? I, I definitely stop short of the oceans. Of <laughs> Although I'm still thinking about that one. Um, it'd be kind of itchy. And, um, but I mean, you know, okay. Well, for me, and, and I think I've, I've often frustrated people who are trying to say, well, let's start thinking about what a post-work society might mean, meaning a, a society where work has been decentered from the center of our lives and also kind of demoted from our hierarchy of values. Like, okay, let's imagine, you know, past examples where in different cultures and in different points in history, people had a different relationship to work and different practices. Or let's try to you know, think of subcultural experiences or all this. And I always resist it because I kind of want to hold open the, the exercise part of this. I mean, I just, because I always feel like all of these examples are always fall short. I think it, I always, I always find, you know, ways in which that example is still kind of beholden to you know conventional work values well everyone will be doing artistic labor but we'll be doing it we'll be so happy doing it we'll be doing it all the time and you know that just sounds a little (laughs) bit suspiciously like Uh you know the way we're supposed to you know treat work today so and i always think of you know i kind of want to hold open this possibility of utopia is still something that you should be thinking about like you should be thinking about what a better world looks like because you might then be able to kind of shape it rather than accept the world that other people are imagining. And the other thing is I, the thing that utopia does for me too, is it reminds me to think of social change on a longer time frame. you know, like, okay, the oceans of lemonade. I mean, one of the things that he's doing there is he's imagining a world that's really different. And he's not telling us how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's valuable. But I also, you have to recognize that the people who would enjoy the work like oral sex and the oceans of lemonade are not us. I mean, like we would have to be completely different people mm-hmm. to live in that sort of world. And, and, and so when you're, when you're engaging for me, a utopian imagination, you're also being willing to think far into the future in a way that we don't usually do it. Cause we always think of, you know, immediate reforms and changes and would this be better? Or would this be worse? Well, let's maybe start thinking about long-term goals and where would you want to go? Then maybe we could think about how to kind of slowly build towards that. But I think that's a, for me, the, the utopian practice is also a practice of uh, expanding time. Mm-hmm. in that way mm-hmm. yeah that's really great I think <clears throat> you know I, I heard you say once about uh, you were saying oh I want to tell my students just like how could you be the least unhappy or you said something like that when you're imagining yeah. uh, work but you know one of the really hard things I, I think what that pointed me to is one of the really hard things to do with utopia or is to write it in a positive vision. And I think that that's part of why, you know, the foyer stuff is really appealing to me is that it's not necessarily against anything. Um, 
that there's a that there's a po- positive vision. It's really hard. So, like one of the things I say to people is like, you know, um, instead of thinking about what you want your job to be, think about what you want your day to look like. And I realize, like, what do you want your day to look like? I realize that that's an individual question, and yet I feel like the the kind of seed of, you know. Um, of being able to do the utopian practice of utopian thinking of thinking sort of into these big issues that gets developed or that mm-hmm. muscle gets strengthened or whatever by saying, okay, so you wake up at nine o'clock, you know, you're doing this from this time to this time. And then, you know, what else is in your day? Who are you talking to? What does it look like outside? All that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's a very, again, an individual version of something that we could do politically, which is, okay, you're, so the world is great, right? <laughs> what, what actually is happening? How are you um, dealing with conflicts? So instead of saying a world with no police, you know, it's more like I live in a community that has a compassionate way of dealing with, you know, inner community conflict. Um, and then roll backwards from there to create the tactic like mm-hmm. you know what's the step before that what's the step before that what's the, until you're standing in the present again and then you have a kind of pathway sort of leading out but i think one of the things you point out that's so great oh god i love it when you say you you wrote something like uh you know knowing the fu- knowing what the future will be and wanting and willing it are not the same thing right like yeah. y- you know um those are two separate practices. And I think that that's where people, they get really, really stuck on that because um, they want all the steps laid out for them, but you can only lay the steps out backwards, I feel, in some way. Well, yeah, and also that's how young activists get shamed is like, well, what's your big plan? You know, what's <laughs> right, your developed right. critique? You know, do you know how all these things work? What's your alternative plan? And, and they answer and say, no, I just have a, you know, a dream and a hope that we could, you know, live better together. And that they get shamed because they're expected to have a plan before they're willing to invest in activism. And I think that's a mistake. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really great. I mean, that certainly was the Occupy, you know, line. Yeah. And now, and now it's the, now it's the Black Lives Matter line, right. you know, right. and then, and then they have to put something forward that's like, well, defund the police. And then people are like, oh, well, if you defund Ooh. the police, then this, 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 this. Like all the problems, you know, r- with their with their demand rush in as soon as they make the demand. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Because <laughs> you, and you write that too, like we, that we've kind of spun into the this place where the proposition is devalued, but the critique is like completely it's it's the way of doing things now that the criticism yeah. versus the proposition yeah so how do we right. get can we can we get out of that can we pull away from that because now the critique is it's the critique versus the proposition you know at this point it seems like yeah i know but i mean it we have to understand i mean this is kind of what you were saying before too about looking at people's daily lives and their practices and these kind of moments these utopian glimpses is glimmers something in people's lives, even in the midst of exploitation and oppression. And anytime an activist takes to the street, they're doing more than just launching mm. a critique. They're also engaging in a kind of hopeful collective practice of being together. I mean, and I think there's a ways to, you know, 
recognize that as always a part of what real activism entails. Because you're not just going to be motivated by a critique. It's also by the, the practice of hope that comes from being together and creating something new. Mm. Okay, so in spite of all that, the, in, like disregarding everything that you and I and Post just said, I want to bring sort of questions and critiques to, um, you know, a, pro- a proposition that you bring, which I know you've been critiqued for before. So I would love to hear you head some of that off, which is about um, universal basic income, um, because it, it seems more and more possible now that that's going to happen. Um, and I have my worries about it. I think my worries are different than the ones that other people talk about, but you, I think you have a really good uh, sort of stance and also defense against the critiques on it. So um, maybe... What's your critique? Oh, well, <laughs> my critique isn't about inflation or any of that kind of stuff. I worry about it tying itself into the technocratic direction that things are going in, mm-hmm. in the same way that I worry about uh, Medicare for all tying itself to remote medicine, where you can only receive certain kinds of care. I worry that UBI will be tied to a kind of um, a kind of work, which is that it will be digital currency that is eroding you know, the possibility of cash currency, which I think is people are trying to, people in institutions in power are trying to do away with anyway. And that also that digital currency will relate to certain digital platforms. That's not, that, that's not my worry so much that I'm like, we shouldn't have UBI, you know, <laughs> like I'm not, I, I'm not so anxious about my speculation that I think we should stop it from happening. But I do I do feel strongly that it will be instituted as digital currency and that we will need then therefore to be on guard against it turning us into basically data miners for, you know, um, Amazon and whatever else, wherever else it can be used as a sort of government allowance um, Mm -hmm. to support corporate partners. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of risks with it. Um, And I just recently uh, wrote a, defense of it in an article triple c where i tried to take on some of the left critiques but i did not take on that one so but i i mean i think you know yes it's a risky demand i really do think it is i just don't know of an alternative demand that promises to help people in a better way um, so, you know, I'm all ears if someone kind of come up with a better plan, but I think we're in a state of emergency and we were in it before COVID, you know, where people cannot pay their bills. People cannot live. It's, there's not enough work to go around. There's not enough work at living wages. I mean, this is very clear. People, um, are trapped in families that are abusive and violent in an attempt to try to pull income. I mean, this is an emergency situation and people need direct relief. And I just, if someone could offer a better proposal, then I'm all ears. But I think, you know, a minimal, minimum living wage, universal and unconditional is a way to 
deliver some benefits. It doesn't take us out of capitalism. In fact, I think it's the only way capitalism is going to survive, you know, ideologically and materially. I mean, so it's it's not a revolutionary vision, but I guess it, it would give people, if you could pool it with others, the option to leave wage work permanently or for part-time, it would give leverage to people to demand better jobs. And you know, give people other options to exit abusive households or enter into other kinds of, you know, arrangements of sharing and caring that that they prefer. So I mean, I, and it gives support for all of the, you know, the so-called productive activity we do that's not wage. So I think it has, you know, um, substantial possibilities. You know, the biggest danger for me is that. If it's going to be one, it'll probably be one initially at a low rate. It won't be a living wage. And if that's the case, it, it might just serve as a kind of supplement to low wage employers um, and not really do anything. And I think that's a real worry. I mean, but I think like any reform, I think it's going to depend on the size of the, you know, the people who are defending and pushing for it, because I don't think this is the kind of thing you're going to get it by voting for a political candidate who's going to institute it. I think this has to come from kind of large scale and multi-directional um, political movements in some ways. And and I think it's it's not going to be one all at once. I mean, like I say, if it, if it gets one, it might be one as a conditional payment. It might be one as a minimal payment, that's not really going to do anything. And then you have to kind of, once you get that foot in the door, keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But that's a, that's a long struggle and there's a lot of risks along the way. So I, I get why people are critical of it is I just don't, I just don't have a better idea about how to provide some real material support for people who are struggle. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I again learn about this from the sex workers' rights movement, which is, you know, I want what all of overwhelming majority of sex workers want, which is decriminalization. But to think that that's enough is is incorrect. And so I think <clears throat> at one, so first, it's speaking to your ability, which I. I've got to hold the vision and also do the on the ground work. Like I can't abandon like the immediate need when I hold on to the vision, but if I don't have the vision, then the on the ground work starts to dissolve in its efficacy anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but so then the concern becomes like something like, uh, I don't know, like when you're talking about it, I'm thinking, okay, Yes, that sounds better than maybe I thought it was. Like the way <laughs> the way you say it now is it, like it's very convincing to me. But then I'm thinking, well, we need to we need to organize now simultaneously to get that, and then to dissolve it as soon as possible. Like, yeah. and I don't know how to do that. I mean, it was the same thing with gay marriage, where I just thought, great, great tactic and strategy, although it was already available to gay people because we could do it with straight people. But okay, I get why you wouldn't want to do that. Like, I get why you wouldn't want to marry somebody of the same, uh, of the opposite sex just to get the, for, for the tactic and the strategy and all that kind of stuff. I understand. But fine. But, you know, now, however many years later for people in the US and uh, maybe like what, five years later here in Ireland or whatever, it's just like, 
okay, <laughs> now we're in the kind of wasteland of the conservatization of gay and lesbian culture and all that kind of stuff and dealing with the way that it's, you know, um, amputated a lot of our, uh, the, the radical political potential and all that kind of stuff. And had we been talking more about, yeah, that's, we're doing this as a tactic. It doesn't have to be our main public message, but, <laughs> you know, like, but had that been more of a part of the conversation, we would have been ready for the fallout after. But there's a way in which propping up the tactic occludes the, the possibility of, uh, or, 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 you know, like occludes the activism that's needed. It's the same thing with voting in, so, in some sense, voting for Joe Biden or whatever. I mean, the yeah, yeah. UBI is way better than yeah. voting for Joe Biden, of course, but you, you see what I'm saying? So how do yeah. we, how do we create that multifaceted conversation that allows us to at once make a demand and, yeah. at the, and, and, and be ready to dismantle the products of the demand after we get it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know, I think it's a perennial problem and I think you can learn a lot from prison abolitionists mm. who are really trying to do this, you know, really trying to hold out a goal, but they're not denying some kinds of reforms are going to be necessary in the short term. And I think they're really, I think, that movement has been really good at always insisting on the value of this vision of abolition as a touchstone, as a kind of critical touchstone, as a you know touchstone for the vision. So that's a, for me, that is one of the most successful examples of it. But I wonder if basic income is a little bit different than the gay marriage example, because you know, if it does get instituted, even if it's at a pretty low rate they're still going to enable the possibility for people to live without being quite so tethered to any form of work that's available. I mean, I think it is the difference with this, this, this reform is that it does allow people some measure of autonomy or separation or little tiny measures of freedom with respect to the private government of the workplace and the kinds of relations of power and the kind of time suck that work is. I mean, if it buys some people a little measure of, you know, freedom from the worst forms of work or, or, um, you know, the, 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 the possibility of more time, there's also the, all of those things are involved in political action and thinking critically. I mean, those are the things that you need in order to be able to complete the fight. And I don't know if you could make the same claim about, you know, gay marriage, although it does give people certain kinds of material benefits that might sustain them to be doing other things. For me, basic income, because of its anti-productivist and anti-family potential, it's a little bit different, you know, even in, even in the, the long process of winning it in the form that we want, or, or that's, that's what, I'm, maybe I'm being too hopeful there, but that's, <laughs> that's what I tend to think. Well, I think, you know, when I'm, when I'm saying gay marriage, I don't have in mind, marry who you love. Um, I have more in mind, like immigration, yeah, you know, yeah. a childhood, right. like, you know, keeping yeah. custody of kids, seeing your lover in the hospital. And yeah. I think that those instances are a bit more like this, which is like, yeah. if nothing else, you're freeing up some psychic space to do some other kinds of work, but yes. within the, 
within the availability of that narrow passageway, you know, like the most dangerous thing in that time is that you get drawn into not giving a shit for a little while because that's, (laughs) and, and and then it's, and then it's just seized by the state and corporations again immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I hear you. <laughs> but, but I also think it's a hopeful vision, and I, I, and uh, I hope I wasn't too contrary. I, um, it's something I've been wanting to talk with you about, and have been trying to wrap my mind around myself for a little while. So, yeah. Um, and you lay out, the, I think, the most convincing argument. So, yeah. I, th- I think we'll end there. I mean, there's so many other things that I want to talk with you about, um, love and. You know, love and the way that that goes into uh, ideas of work and all that. It's fine. We'll hopefully talk again. Um, And it's been really great talking with you. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And thanks, everybody, for listening.